Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're continuing our series on the Old Testament books of Kings. In today's talk, we're covering a lot of ground. Keep in mind how behind all the political turmoil that's depicted, there's an unseen war going on for the soul of the nation. Let's begin. As you're looking through Kings, don't get hung up on the, the dating and details, if it, especially if this is your first time really to do a serious reading of 1 Kings. You're going to find, you know, say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not sure how these dates line up. That's because there are two different dating systems for the reigns of the kings that are used throughout this book. And some of them give a, uh, a literal time, this is the time that he started and this is the time. That, and then others show the overlap of one king's reign with another king because it wasn't just, you know, we, they didn't have a clean and clear line of succession so that one, you know, the way we have in our electoral system where when one, step, one steps down and the other one steps in and takes over, you've got, you've got co-regencies going on and, and periods going. Not only that, you've got overlappings uh, and, and you've got a system of comparison where uh, the king in one country's reign is compared to when the the king in another country started and I want you to know it is not if you're having a difficult time with it Bible scholars have headaches over getting this stuff arranged I mean if you've got a chart if you've got a study Bible that's got a chart great if you've got a Bible encyclopedia or Bible handbook use that but other than that don't don't get too hung up on that that's not that big of a deal it all works out it really is all the details are all there the writer of Kings is just wanting us to know he's documenting his sources and one of the ways that we see his sources is how he documents the reigns of the kings and, and where they are. But he wants you to see his focus is on the kings of Israel. Now that's different from the focus of the writer of Chronicles whose focus is on the kings of Judah and on the, uh, and on the house of David. That's that's the focus of Chronicles, and uh, in the that's kind of the supplemental reading to what we're doing in Kings, and that helps us kind. Of, and there are some details in Chronicles that Kings doesn't mention about some of the same episodes and events, but essentially they cover the same line of history. But you've got a whole lot more about Judah in the books of Chronicles than you do in the books of Kings. <coughs> The focus in Kings, though, is you've got the focus of the covenant and what happened. Uh, in the kingdom of Judah, or in the kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom split. Remember, after the death of Solomon, Solomon ruled over a united kingdom, but Solomon himself had planted the seeds of the division of his kingdom. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, The, the, wisest, the wisest king, the wisest man in all history gives birth to a, a king who is a fool and fulfills 
the prophecy that God had said. And just the consequences come in. The consequences, you know, the wisest king of all was not immune to folly. And he himself committed great folly in introducing. Remember we talked last week, we mentioned the power of precedent. That is so important. You know what precedent does in your life? It either raises or lowers the baseline of righteousness. Now this happens in the life of a society. It happens in the life of a church. It happens in the life of an individual. When was the last time the baseline of righteousness was moved in your life? What moved it and which direction did it move? Did it move to where your life is more closely following your Lord? Or did it move in a direction where you're permitting more compromise in your life than you ever permitted before? Solomon made compromises, permitted compromise. What Solomon permitted as a compromise, Jeroboam, who came in and established the northern kingdom of Israel with the help of God. And under the promise of God, established the northern king. It's Actually, it wasn't establishing a northern kingdom. just took the kingdom away. Strictly speaking, it wasn't really a split. It was a coup. It was a coup d'etat. Strictly speaking, Rehoboam was deposed as king. But because of the mercy of God toward his grandfather and fulfilling the promises that God had made to his grandfather David Rehoboam God permitted Rehoboam to keep Judah and the territory of Judah which included the tribe of Benjamin and really had already absorbed the tribe of Simeon and so really and strictly speaking it wasn't a split it was a coup d'etat And Jeroboam had established the kingdom of Israel under the promise of God. But Jeroboam didn't believe in the promise of God. Jeroboam took the precedent of Solomon, which was to permit idolatry for idolaters who lived in the land. Idolaters whom he had brought into the land through intermarriage. To permit idolaters. That was Solomon's compromise. Permit idolatry for idolaters. Jeroboam took that a step further. Introducing idolatry into the worship of Jehovah. Because he didn't want defections back to Judah. He didn't want defections back to Rehoboam. And he felt like if people go back to Jerusalem for Passover, if people go back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, if people go back to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement, their hearts are going to be turned back to the line of David and they will leave me, they'll assassinate me, and then they'll go back to the line of David. Never mind the fact that God had promised him, if you obey me, I will establish you. He didn't believe God. He believed his advisors. 
So he established a shrine, not just a shrine, a temple at Bethel. And just to make sure that the northern tribes weren't left out, he established another one up at Dan, which was the spot of an ancient idolatrous shrine of Israel earlier during the days of the judges. And so he had these two shrines and he set up, what did he set up? Golden calves. So these are your gods, O Israel. Did he intend for them to depart from Jehovah? That wasn't his point. But that's always the end, the end result. Religion became for him a means to an end. Jeroboam was a liberal, which means the liberals look at religion, look at faith, look at theology as being an invention of man. The whole point is, it's not that God is an invention of man necessarily. That's not what, it, what it's about. But that there are, there are no doubt lots of different ways to get to God. And, and, and our religious faith, this is just the way that we choose to go to God. And so it's all about human convenience. It's all about human desires. It's all about what we want to do. That's what Jeroboam had set up. That was his theology. That was his religious system. And so he used it for political, end, for political ends. And by golly, it worked. The people didn't go back to Jerusalem. It was a whole lot more convenient to go to Bethel or to Dan to make your sacrifices. And they'd go and they were still singing the same psalms. They were. Although they probably eliminated some of those that were especially about David. <laughs> they still studied the same Bible, so to speak. Jeroboam set up his own priesthood. Why? Because the Levites wouldn't have anything to do with these other, priests, with these other shrines. Because the Levites had a strong union. That was a joke, folks. <laughs> But it's true today. If you water down the it's easier for you, then you're going to fall farther yeah. from God. The point is the Levites were not going to... And the Levites, who were dispersed throughout Israel, defected in droves so that there were hardly any other Levites left in the northern tribe. After Jeroboam established that the Levites weren't going to participate, there was no way. So the tribe of Levi became completely, almost exclusively affiliated with the kingdom of Judah and the line of David. They weren't going to leave the directions of the law of Moses that specified. And besides, it didn't really matter to Jeroboam because Jeroboam was going to, enter, he was going to make up his own way as he was getting along anyway. So he appointed, he just, he had a great system, says we're going to find the most qualified people to be the priests. We're going to find the most qualified people to be the priests. And so they did. And you know, there were probably some uh, Levites, members of the tribe of Levi, and probably some members of the family of Aaron, who weren't really great priests. So... Jeroboam's plan seemed to work. People, only people who really wanted to be priest became priest. And only you know, people who really had an aptitude for that sort of thing became priests. And it really started working out well for him. Everybody was going along. And 
Things are going great. Well, let's look at Second First uh, Kings chapter fifteen. Uh, at the end of chapter 14, we've got the uh, last story of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, verse 21, chapter 14, son of Solomon was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. That is kind of stuck, you know, put in there, kind of on purpose by our prophet writer of First Kings. His mother's name was Naama. She was an Ammonite. It's kind of significant that the crown prince who would succeed Solomon, his mother was not an Israelite. How far did Solomon fall? Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's that formula phrase. That formula phrase, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, basically that is, a, that is a shorthand code phrase for they turned to idols. They worshipped idols. By the, by the sins they committed, they stirred up the jeal- his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. That's pretty, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Let me just go ahead and tell you. Because their fathers had done a lot. They also set up for themselves high places. What are high places? Well, high places are those places where they're, basically they're renegade sites for the worship of God. They're those things that people decided, I'll worship God here because this place is pretty. What's wrong with that? When God has commanded the means and the place of worship, you don't deviate from God's command. You do what God says to do. If you don't do what God says to do, Worst case scenario, he lets you. He turns you over to what you want. And you will get what you want. You may not want what you end up getting. They worship God at the high places. See, when you worship God in places that he has not designed for you to worship... Then you start worshiping God in ways that are alien to Him. So go look at the next one. They set up sacred stones. Sacred stones, what are those things about? And Asherah poles. You don't even want to know what Asherah poles are about. Asherah. Yeah. Canaanite. The female consort to Baal. You don't even want to know. On every high hill and under every spreading tree, there were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. We're talking sodomy. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. This is in Judah. This is in the kingdom where they didn't go and institute official idolatry like they did in the northern kingdom. This is in the righteous southern kingdom. This is in Judah. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. 
carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace, took everything. Remember those gold shields Solomon made? <laughs> They're gone to Egypt. Melted down. So King Rehoboam, there's something, I, I would love to camp on this. I'm just going to mention it. Took the, they took the gold shields of Solomon. So what did Rehoboam do? Did he repent? Did he humble himself? Did he say, oh God, how far have we fallen away from you? And that the great wealth that my father has accumulated has now been taken off by invaders from Egypt. Oh God. Rather, No. Did he humble himself? Did he pray? Did he seek God's face? Did he turn from his wicked ways? No. He made bronze shields. Why? Well, they're shiny. You polish them up real good and you go out with, the, with, your, uh, with your soldiers carrying that in a ceremonial occasion and in the bright sunshine. They glimmer and gleam and it looks just like gold. And so they march out carrying the bronze shields and then they march back in and they keep them polished and, and you've, got, you've got a secure detail and people and nobody will ever know that we lost the gold shields. It was. It was. No, I mean, uh, that is. Uh, you've lost the real thing, so you cover it up with something fake. Oh, I'd, I'd love to camp on that. And that. That's a camp meeting verse. I mean, that's a. I mean, we can we can get righteous on that one, but we're not, we're just going to go on. Uh, uh, verse 29 <laughs> and then you, then you go on I love these notes by the, by the writer of Kings I mean, you, you, sh- you see these throughout the book as for the other events of Rehoboam's reign all they did aren't they written in the land as the king of Judah said they're not important to us <laughs> we're, we're not concerned about them here gonna, if you want to read about that you read it on your own time that's not what we're talking about that's an important thing by the way the point of First Kings is not to give us the history of the kings, it's to give us the history of God. It's to give us the history of God's grace toward His people and His people's continuing resistance of God's grace. That's the point of the kings. So that's why the writer of Kings keeps bringing in these. Say, if you want to read about the history of the kings, that's not our point. Our point is not just to tell you about There's a whole lot of other stuff we're not telling you about because it's not important to what we're doing here. What we're doing here is talking about the history of salvation. All of this has a point. This is about spiritual warfare going on. These are kingdoms in collision and they're not the kingdoms of this world. And God's will will not be frustrated and His promise will not be defeated. But there is opposition. There is evil. And it doesn't go easy. So all these other, you want to read about that other thing. Verse 30, there was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam resisted. The one thing Rehoboam did right was the one time he listened to a prophet was when a prophet said, he collected this huge army getting ready to invade Jeroboam. said, we're going to take this kingdom back. The prophet said, no, you're not. Don't do that. They're your brothers. And Rehoboam incredibly backed down. The one time 
in Rehoboam's entire life that he showed some good sense. That doesn't mean that things were all at peace. There was continual warfare fighting. There were raids back and forth. There was competition. There were, there were little battles and skirmishes all over the place, but you didn't have the large-scale civil war. And Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. Didn't deserve to, but he did anyway because that was his name. That also is part of the grace of God. His... And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. Abijah means my father is the Lord. Did not deserve his name. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king in Judah. He reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Ma'akah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father, as the heart of David, his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's command all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Now, here's the important... Remember... Back in the commandment, God had said, in the second commandment, you shall not uh, make any graven image, you shall not bow down to them, you shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generations, but showing mercy to thousands, that means thousands of generations of those that fear him. Where sin, Paul said, where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. That's an illustration of this. Was David the perfect guy? No. But God had his heart. And because of that, David's unworthy successors reaped benefits from David's faithfulness because God is gracious and God keeps his promises even when people don't again Paul writes though he remains faithful though we are faithless he remains faithful he cannot deny himself mm. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime as other events of Abijah's reign and all he did. Are they not written in the annals of the kings of the book of Judah? The war between Abijah and Jeroboam and Abijah rested with his father in the city of David and Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. All of a sudden we've got a light turned on. Three years, about three short, unhappy Mercifully brief years from Abijah. Asa comes in. The 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah. He reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Maaka, daughter of Abishalom. Now, why are, we, why are we mentioning mothers and grandmothers here? Well, it'll come clear. Hang on. Just hang on. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. 
Mark that. That is a rare statement in this book. It doesn't show up often, and when it does, it's significant. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his father had made. He even, now, all of this, you think, well, good, he's king, you know, he can do that. All of this came at a political <clears throat> price for him. You understand that? There is a market for these people. There is a business. There is an economic interest. There is a social interest. People have an appetite for this sort of thing. It is a socially accepted deal. And he came in and he said, get him out of here. He had to pay a price for that. It was not an easy, you know, these things are just said, this was not an easy thing. Well, he's the king. The king has to enforce his own law. He got rid of these things. Verse 13, he even deposed his grandmother, Ma'aka, from her position as queen mother. You think that was a little controversial? Because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut the pole down, burned it in the Kidron Valley. You think everybody's starting to think, yeah, I think this Asa guy is kind of serious. He kicks his grandma out and burns down her religious, burns her religious relics in the Kidron Valley. Burns them in the trash dump. Verse 14, although he did not remove the high places, this is one thing, this is, this is one, to use the, the phrase, this one sacred cow, even Asa didn't feel like he could touch. Those high places are so deeply ingrained that he doesn't think he can move them. So he doesn't even try. He's got so much political capital, he uses as much as he can. But these things... He doesn't, he doesn't try to get rid of. He says, we're going we're gonna to have to save that for another time. But look at for this verse. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the, simple, the silver and gold and the articles that his father had dedicated. All this stuff had been taken out of the temple and been used in other places. He says, no, no. This stuff has been dedicated to the service of the Lord. Put it back in the temple. We don't, we don't use stuff that God is dedicated to God. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reign. God didn't give him peace just because he was a good guy. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and battled and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. And Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace, and he entrusted it to officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabrim, and the son of Hezion, the son of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Now we've got that thing, you know, all that stuff that he took and dedicated in the temple. At this point, Asa is so worn out by the war, he compromises a conviction of his own. His heart doesn't depart from the Lord, but he's wavering in his ability to trust God to be his victory. And so he starts making an alliance. Because God has raised up north of Israel, raised up as an enemy to Solomon, raised up the kingdom of Syria, the Aramean kingdom, 
headquartered it with its throne city in Damascus, that ancient city there. He makes an alliance with the northern kingdom, with, with the kingdom of Syria. Say, you help us out on the northern front in Israel and get some pressure off of us. We'll send you some of this silver and gold from our temple. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel, conquered Ion, Dan, Abel, Beth Maaka, all Kinnereth in addition to Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew to Tirzah. And then King Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baasha had been using there. So with them, King Asa built up Geba in Benjamin and also Mitzpah. So you've got this back and forth, this competition, this warfare, and all that's going on. As for all other events of Asa's reign, his achievements, all he did, the cities he built, aren't they written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Asa was a good guy. We're not focusing on all his achievements as king. We've got one purpose, and that's to show how God is at work in all of this. In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. That was one sad thing, you know, to note about Asa. Then Asa rested with his fathers, was buried with them in the city of his father David, and Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoshaphat, there's a much more told about him in Chronicles than there is in Kings. We're going to focus on what, God, what the Bible says about him in Kings, okay? Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years... Now, this is the northern kingdom. Now, we're switching back to Israel. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, succeeded his father, became the second year king in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, reigned two years, <laughs> a, short life, a short reign and a miserable one. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and the sin which he had caused Israel to commit, the power of a precedent. This is a hugely significant thing. The precedent that Jeroboam had set by setting up idols at Bethel and at Dan and this competitive temple at Bethel, that is a precedent that was never overturned. And it became the continuing sin throughout Israel. God wanted to bless Israel. He kept sending prophets. He began, later on, we're going to see when God began sending prophets to Israel. And the prophetic ministry. And he said, oh, these prophets are bugging. These prophets are the mercy of God. These prophets are trying to get you to come back. Reject these idols. Turn to God. Worship Him alone. Worship Him the way that He said. Obey His commandments. He will bless you. Disobey. And you come under the curse of the covenant. Don't you understand? And the warfare, the God's <coughs> beseeching of His own covenant people and His faithfulness toward His covenant. God's not letting them go. But they keep progressively wanting to let God go. That precedent is overturned and that's what is meant by every time you see, every time you see what, uh, the name of the king of Israel... He continued in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That's what that's talking about. In other words, did not overturn that precedent. We still had the, you still had the idolatrous calf at Bethel and at Dan. And that's not going to change. 
until Israel's gone. Well, Baasha, verse 27, where did he come from? Because we've seen that Asa is in a continual war with Baasha. Well, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, plotted against him, and he plotted against him, Nadab, and struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Nadab was uh, carrying out his role as general king. Baasha was one of his generals. Baasha assassinated Nadab, son of Jeroboam. What, what do you, what? Back in 14, was it 14? Was it one of the prophets that came to Jericho? That's right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ahijah the, that's mentioned, that's the prophet that said. That's Baasha's yeah. father. Now, Ahijah is the prophet who had anointed Jeroboam. And then, who later on, Jeroboam sent his wife to say, wear a disguise, you know, because so, he's blind, he's old, he won't know who you are anyway, but go ahead, wear a disguise. Now, if he's blind and won't know who you are, why do you have to wear a disguise? But, you know, I mean, that's, but, you know, go and, and act like you're somebody else, but, you know, find out about my son, you know, this, this child, you know, what are you going to do? And, and Ahijah said, I know who you are. I know why you're here. And forget about it. Your husband? can go jump in a lake. God, he, he told God to jump in a lake, so God's telling him you can go jump in a lake. You are not going to have a dynasty. Your dynasty ends quick. This is a fulfillment. What happens here? Baasha, general, comes in, assassinates Nadab, takes over the army, takes over the kingdom. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family, didn't leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and caused all Israel to commit, because he had provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. Now this is the interesting thing. I want you to follow this, folks. It's very important to understand this is God at work in the world. There are certain things that God will take action to do directly and to see fulfilled. And then there are other things that to us seem inexplicable. If God can cause the destruction of a dynasty, if God can cause, if God will prophesy and say these things are going to happen to you and you won't fulfill them, why couldn't God just as easily take down the idols? You ever wonder about that? Why doesn't God take down the idols? Why doesn't He destroy the... Why doesn't He just send... Why doesn't He rain down fire on them like Sodom and Gomorrah? Why doesn't He swallow them up in a, in a great earthquake and crevice like He did Dathan and Abijah back in, you know, back in the wilderness? Why, 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 why does God leave these idols? He lets the sins go on, but He, just, he kills the sinners. Folks, the sins 
the sins are just an externalization of what's already in the people. And this is what you're going to see throughout the book of Kings. The rulers bring up into one person what is in the heart of all the people. Or let me put it another way. Let me turn the thing around. The people get the leadership that they want. People get the governors that they want. They get the kings that they want. They get the kings that represent their heart. Asa comes to the kingdom. Asa comes to the throne. And he has he has a heart to serve God and he has the ability, he has the political capital that he can get rid of these entrenched idolatries. Why? Because there is a revival stirring in the hearts of the people. The peop there are people who have become sick. There are people of, of, the, of the sinfulness that's going on. There are people who have prayed and who have cried out to God and God is answering their prayers. God raises up the leader that the people want. God is not shoving somebody down the throats of the people that they want to have no part of. When Baasha, when Baasha comes up and assassinates Nadab, it's probably because there's a groundswell of disgust with the leadership, with the political and military leadership of Nadab. He just, you know, people don't like what he's doing. There are, and and Baasha doesn't do this by himself. I mean, he's got, he's got supporters. Otherwise, there's no way that he can stand as an assassin to, be, to take over the, the, the kingdom unless he's got support. What happens in the Bible isn't different in the way of human events of anything else that goes on in the world. But what we're being shown here is God's view of what's important. Men look at other things. They analyze other causes and effects and other things going on. What the prophet here who's writing Kings is showing us is God's view of it. You won't see in the news accounts the story of Ahijah's prophecy. But that's the one that's significant to God. And that's the one he wants us to know. So Baasha comes in. He takes over. And he's allowed to take over because of all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And God fulfilled his promise. <laughs> God's fulfilling his promise. God promised Jeroboam, you obey me, I will establish you. You disobey me, I'm going to fire you quick. God's fulfilling his promise. God's fulfilling his contract. Verse 31, as for all the other events of Nadab's reign, all he did, yeah, they're written in the annals of the kings of Israel. There's war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Then in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in Tirzah. He reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and then the sin which he had caused Israel to commit. No change there. Status quo, spiritually. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani against Baasha. Now, don't confuse him. Later on, there's going to be a king named Jehu. This is not it. This is, this, is, this is a prophet named Jehu. He came and prophesied against Baasha. And look at what God says to Baasha. I lifted you up from the dust and made you leader of my people Israel. 
But you walked in the ways of Jeroboam, caused my people Israel to sin and provoked me to anger by their sins. So I'm about to consume Baasha and his house, and I will make you, I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Baasha who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. Well, that's all we want to hear about Baasha. <laughs> As for all the other events of his reign, ah, they're written in the, you know, go, you read it, go to the library, read it yourself. That's basically what he's saying. He slept with his fathers, not peacefully. And Elah, his son, uh, succeeded him as king. Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet. We're not through with Jehu. Yet. Jehu's got another line here. Uh, to Baasha and his house, because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger by the things he did and becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Baasha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in tears of two years. Zimri sometimes called Zimri, but Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half his chariots. Here's another military clue, military coup coming up, plotted against him. Ela was in Tirzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the man in charge of the palace at Tirzah. At least Nadab, when he was assassinated, he was out in the field laying siege to a Philistine town. This jerk is in, he's back somewhere and is getting drunk. So we're coming to, I mean, we're, we're seeing, the, understand, these things are in there intentionally. With all the other stuff that the writer of Kings is leaving out, pay attention to what he puts in. There is a reason. He is, say, he is looking, he is giving us one little glimpse at the character of the person he's going to. He says, don't feel sorry for this fool. He's a drunken slob. He didn't deserve to be given a good conduct medal, let alone be the king of a nation. Is this, is this also telling us that while micro-adjustments in your precedence to, at the beginning will someday turn into major adjustments? I mean, it, it starts it's, slowly and mm-hmm. then drops off like a rock. It starts... You, you don't even think... You, you've got, you cannot anticipate how much a disobedient act will increase. That's what you're saying? So here we've got... So he's assassinated while he's stone drunk. And Zimri came in, struck him down, killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. And as soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Baasha's whole family. Didn't spare a single male, whether relative or friend. <laughs> he even killed his friends. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Baasha in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Baasha through the prophet. You kinda, you, you'd kind of think, you know, I don't want to be close to these idolatrous kings. I don't want to even be in the same. They didn't learn, though. That's a, no, no, slow learners. No learners, as a matter of fact. Because of all the sins Baasha and Jehu, because of the sins Baasha and Senela committed and caused Israel to commit so that they provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger by their worthless idols. Here's the whole thing. They didn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. Why is God not happy with us? We're worshiping Him all the time. 
We're bringing offerings and sacrifices to these golden calves all the time. We go pray to him all the time with these Asherah poles. Why is it? And then, you know, why is all this happening? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned in tears of seven days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Seven days. <laughs> One week. That was a short week, too. The army was camped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king, murdered him, they proclaimed Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that very day there in the camp. And then Omri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon, laid siege to Tirzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went to the citadel of the royal palace <laughs> and set the palace on fire around him. Okay, that's a successful tactic. I'll show them. I'll burn everything down and me with it. <clears throat> What a worthy, worthy man here. (sighs) I'll show them, you know. Oh, man. So he died because of the sins he had committed doing evil in the eyes of the... For one week. Now, this this is this is the most important thing. (laughs) (laughs) About <laughs> Zimri, <laughs> he was king for a week. But you know what his most significant achievement was? He continued the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's his most significant achievement of his kingdom. <laughs> I mean, you really have to tick God off in order to... <clears throat> I'm, it just... As for the other events of Zimri's reign, both of them, I mean, you know, and the rebellion he carried out, there, go read it in the library. Then verse 21. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. Half supported Tibni, son of Ganath, for king. The other half supported Omri. Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ganath. That's why you never hear of Tibni, son of Ganath. He didn't make a week. He didn't make it at all. So Tibni died. I wonder how. I mean, we're not even told. So Tibni died. We're not even, I mean. Your guess. You know, just. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel. He reigned 12 years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought the. Now, here's the interesting thing about Omri. If, the, if you were to read newspaper accounts of Omri, you would read that he was a successful, powerful, influential, and worthy king. You would. You would read about, if you were to read newspaper accounts of Omri, you would read that he was a significant individual. And you would think, this guy must have been blessed by the Lord because what he did was successful. He bought the city of, he bought Samaria and built a city which became almost impregnable on that hill. He, and and he did it at a bargain, bought it for two talents of silver. 
And he established something. But Omri, verse 25, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, sinned more than all those before him. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger by their worthless idols. Let me tell you why I, I tell you, if you read a newspaper, they did, newspaper accounts did recognize Omri. You look at Assyrian artifacts. Assyria, there are in, Assyrian inscriptions which refer to the city of Omri and the sons of Omri and the dynasty of Omri. When they, refer, when they refer to the kingdom of Israel, they talk about the kingdom of Omri. Omri made a name for himself. As a political and military leader, he was a success. You would look at him and you would think from the outside, God's blessed him. Here's God's opinion of Omri. Verse 25, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. Well, wait a minute, that didn't figure. I mean, here's Zimri, he didn't last a week. Here's Omri and he's, he's established something. God must be blessing him. Mm -mm. This is not the blessing of God. There is another war going on here that we are not seeing anything of. We're only seeing the outworkings of another war going on. And this war has to do with the salvation history of our Lord. This has to do with the coming of Christ. And there are things going on that we don't see. We only see the outworkings of it. He walked in all the ways the son of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and his sin which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. And as for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did, I'll go read it in the library. And Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son succeeded him as king. We have now been introduced to the arch-villain of the book of Kings. the 38th year of Asa king of Judah Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him now consider the power of that statement starting with the president of Jeroboam the son of Nebat And the inauguration of this banana republic kind of rapid succession of kings. Closing out with a seven day rule by Zimri. So ignominiously ended in, <laughs> who literally went down in flames. And then it is said that Omri, his father, did more evil than anyone who was before him. And then we come to the words, to the line given to Ahab. He did more evil than his father. Kind of reminds me of the story of the, you know, the Cajun gangsters. Two brothers, bootleggers, criminals, ran the vice network in that stretch, the parish, and one of them died. 
So the other brother went to the Baptist preacher, said, you know, the Catholic Church won't bury my brother, so I was wanting to see if, if you'd do the funeral for my brother. And said, well, I'm not going to try to preach him into heaven or anything like that. So I don't want you to do that. Said, well, but I'll tell you what, if you, if, you will say, if you will find one good thing to say about my brother in your eulogy, I will donate $50,000 to your church. Said, well, I'm not going to lie. Said, I don't want you to lie. That's exactly the point. I do not want you to lie. If you'll find one good thing to say about my brother, I will donate $50,000. Said, okay. Well, the Lord, I'll, I'll say, do a funeral for anybody, and I'll see if I can, if the Lord will give me one good thing to say about your brother. Said, well, I'll do it. Said, well, he stood up and he began to give the eulogy. Said, the man we're burying here today was a liar, a thief. He was a scoundrel and a cheat. He was a criminal. He ran vice. He is suspected of violent acts that were, that were never proven against him. And his brother sitting over here and starting to, you know, the, you know, you can see. And he's holding the check up, you know. Said he was all of these things and more, but there is one thing I can say about his brother that is good about this man that was good. Compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) (laughs) Deals a deal, you know. (laughs) Compared to, Omri did more evil than anyone before him, but compared to his son, he was a saint. In Ahab's time, he of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. This is an interesting little, an interesting little note, but it also is significant. Back in the days, remember when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and all, you know, and the wall came from and everything like that. And Joshua made a prophecy. This land, this place is going to be a ruin and cursed be the man who rebuilds it. And he put a specific curse on whoever rebuilds this city. I want you to look. Verse 34. In Ahab's time, he, of Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. Laid its foundation. It's about time we raised this. This is, this is too good a property. This is too ancient a city. This is too great a property. Just leave here like it is. Just leave a ruin. We've got, we've got to make some money off of this thing. Laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua prophesied that but now here's the interesting thing this is the thing that strikes this tells you how far we've come it says at the cost of his own son doesn't say his son died said he paid that price he's offering sacrifice of his own children bless the foundation laid of Jericho. I don't think even Joshua saw that much corruption in the curse that he had given. How far have we come morally now? So that the man who rebuilds Jericho is willing to sacrifice his own children to foreign gods in order to bless the building of the city that he knows that the Lord won't bless. Mm. And we're only getting started. And the battle's getting ready to heat up.
This has been the fifth of eight talks on 1 Kings. Now we've been introduced to one of the arch-villains of the Bible. Next time, we'll meet the arch-hero who rises up to resist him. This is Gary Nation for Insight. Thanks for listening.